now a reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready. Even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak, but understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. No, the computer went to sleep. Okay, go old school here. Uh, written in Samuel Beckett, uh, written by Samuel Beckett in the post-war period, after the, in the middle of the 20th century, Waiting for Godot is a, considered a significant play in the modern, for, for creating the modern drama. It created a genre called theater of the absurd. And in this genre, playwrights sought to deconstruct uh, plot and character and even language as social commentary. And, in, and it's a simple two-act play that focuses on a conversation between two men named Estragon and Vladimir, displayed here on the screen. They meet at this leafless tree. And we discover that they're waiting for someone named Godo to show up, but we don't know why they're waiting for him. The play seeks to answer this question, what should we do as we wait? At one point in the play, Estragon says, let's not do anything. It's safer. To which Vladimir says, let's wait and see what he says. Estragon says, who? Vladimir, Godo. I say, good idea. These two characters wait in vain for an unknown character to give them a sense of purpose. But the only sense of purpose in the play seems to come from their act of waiting for Godot, who actually never shows up. Viewers are left to interpret the meaning of waiting. Is waiting futile? Is life just an endless waiting game that we hope to distract ourselves from the monotony through entertainment, through pleasure, or through shopping? Now, in a culture that commercializes everything from Halloween to Thanksgiving to Black Friday to Christmas trees to Christmas presents, the Christian church begins the season of Advent this Sunday. For those who aren't familiar, the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival. It's an opportunity for the church to pause and to reflect as uh, in all, amidst all of our rushing, and remember who has arrived and who will arrive once again. During Advent, we take time to reflect on the past arrival and on the future arrival of one named Jesus, 
who reshapes what waiting looks like in this life. Waiting is not hopeless. Waiting is not passive. Waiting is not futile. Waiting is not something to be afraid of and to rush through. We find our waiting, is fr- when it's framed in waiting for the Lord, our waiting now is infused with new meaning. passage describes, uh, so we're going to talk through waiting, that waiting is active, but waiting is also faithful. The passage describes how waiting can be incredibly active. The text begins with a series of commands here on the screen. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. So he comes and he knocks and they can immediately open the door for them. Series of commands. Stay dressed. Keep your lamps burning. Stay awake. The the master is returning home. It's easy to gloss over each of these commands, but each statement is pregnant with activity. For instance, when Jesus says, be dressed, ready for service, the Greek text actually says, let your loins be girded. Now, for our modern years, I think, let your strip loins be grilled, but that's not what he's talking about. (laughs) Let your loins be girded is is to take a man's robe and pick it up between his legs and tuck it into his belt so that he's ready to run. It's kind of like how maybe a, a woman who's wearing a long dress today tucks her dress so that she can ride a bike. It's not how you normally move about and wear your clothes, but it's what you do when you have to get ready to move. Keep your lamps burning also suggests being alert and at watch for the master's return. There's no time when you shouldn't be ready for the master to come back, so stay awake. These phrases use the Greek perfect imperative, which imply a constant state of readiness. Once started, they are not to be stopped until the master returns. You know, when I was growing up, I learned what it meant to be actively waiting. You know, my sister and I grew up learning how to play the violin. And we were supposed to practice 45 minutes a day. But as latchkey kids, as they say, when the parents are away, the mice will play. Except these mice weren't playing violin. We were watching after-school cartoons. And for you Gen Zers, after-school cartoons on TV it may not be a thing for you. You're used to picking up your device as soon as school's over, hopping onto YouTube or TikTok. Except back then, you only had a device, one device, one screen at home. And back then for us, we had a Sony TV with a dial turn, and so you couldn't even change channels without getting up off of your couch to go, and you had to negotiate with your siblings about what you're going to watch. You don't get to do everything on demand. But I digress. (laughs) The point is, actually, instead of actually practicing the violin, we would now open up our violin cases, take out our bows and tighten it up, rosin the bow, place it on the music stand, take out the violin, put it on the music stand, open up our music, put it on the music stand, and then we go watch TV. But we watched it on low volume so that we could hear our parents when they arrived home and came up the porch and opened the door. And then when they when they're doing that, we'd quickly get up, pick it up, start playing in the middle of the piece and finish off the piece as they walk in the door, 
so that they would know that we were practicing the entire time. We were actively waiting for our parents to return home, but for very selfish and lazy reasons. You know, when Jesus asks, commands his disciples to wait actively, he's asking the disciples to not sit back and relax. They are to live and to serve in the household as if the master was about to return. Now, the disciples thought they could kick back and relax. They assumed that they were in with the master. They had seen him perform all these miracles. They heard him do all these teachings. They had, Jesus had actually sent them out two by two to go and preach the good news. They're on the inside track of this internship with Jesus, the master. So they thought they were set. But Jesus gives them this instruction to wait actively in the midst of a series of warnings. If you look earlier in the chapter, Jesus warns them to be faithful in the midst of hypocrisy in verse 1. Verses 8 to 9, he talks about uh, warning against persecution and staying faithful in the midst of that. Verses 13 to 15, he talks about warning against greed. Verses 22 to 32, warning against worry. Jesus knows that they have no idea what they are about to face when he leaves them. So he warns them to be ready. Now, we might presume to think that Jesus asks them to be active in their waiting so they don't fall into temptation. I think many of us as parents, or if you've been a caregiver, you know that when you leave your kids alone and they're playing independently and all things, sudden things get really quiet, you know that things are probably getting into, they're probably getting into more trouble than you'd like them to be. But keeping them out of trouble isn't why Jesus is telling the disciples to stay active. The main reason Jesus commands them to stay active is so that they can focus on what's life-giving, so they can focus on what's most important. Jesus had begun to show them what the kingdom of God looks like. When the master arrives, people are healed. Lives and relationships are restored. When the master speaks, people discover the truth about themselves, but also about the world that we live in. And that's what Jesus invites us as Jesus followers to be active in. As we wait for our master to be active in, before Jesus returns. Our activity isn't some sin management or pain avoidance strategy. As much as we often like to do those things. Our activity while we wait is instead intended to point to the reality of the master's arrival. See, between the first arrival of Jesus and the impending arrival of Jesus, Jesus calls all his followers to prepare the household for the master as if the master was here. And this leads us to another reason for our waiting in verses 36 and 37. We're told that when he comes, waiting for the master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those, those to come. In verses 36 and 37, Jesus describes how servants of the household were to wait attentively at the door, ready for the master to return from a wedding feast. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but back then, wedding feasts could last up to a week. So when the master went away, can you imagine a babysitting gig for them? It could be, it wasn't just two hours or four hours. It was like either a day or seven days. 
Servants didn't know when the master would return, and the house had to be in order until the master returned. The master who returns, we find, is looking for one thing from the servants, that the servant is ready to hand over the household to the master, having faithfully watched over it in the master's absence. You know, one absent, uh, aspect of our active waiting is to ask, will the master recognize his home when he returns? And if so, then will it be good for the servants who have faithfully watched over it? Now, we might, be, we might hear this phrase, it will be good for the servants, as a stern look from the master with God, wagging, well, you better, it's going to be good. It'll be good for you if you do this. And we might in the furrowed brow and keeping God's children in line. But what if we instead read this text, not as a stern warning, but as a warm invitation from a God who loves us and wants the best for us? It would be good for, God's, for, for those servants. This is an invitation to faithfulness to God because it's what we're designed for. It's a reminder for followers of Jesus to be faithful to Jesus as we wait. We will be assessed by the Lord by how we have walked with God, as a community, especially as a community of faith. How do we serve others in this community? Do we build up or do we destroy our sisters and brothers in Christ's body? Do we build up or destroy with our ideology? or even with our theology, or with our politics. A few verses later, which Ryan didn't read for us in verse 45, Jesus warns the servants in the household who see the master's absence as an opportunity to take advantage of others with excessive behavior, for selfish gain, or to make themselves feel better about themselves. Jesus offers a warning that those who do so find themselves on dangerous ground until when the master returns. And as the elders shared last week during our congregational town hall, we hope to model and live out as a faith community what it looks like to walk in unity where we don't yet all agree on some things. And if you missed the elder conclusions to the LGBT TQ discernment process that we've been walking through for these past two and a half years, uh, just send an email to elders at wcfchurch.org and we'll get you a copy of it. You know, having different perspectives doesn't mean that there is no truth when it comes to matters of sexuality and gender. But we want to prioritize what is essential in our truth, where it is clear. We want to be clear about the nature of God that's revealed in Jesus Christ. We want to be clear about the Trinity. We want to be clear about the, uh, what Jesus has done for us to atone for sin and brokenness in our world. We want to be clear that it's faith that saves us, not our works. We want to be clear about the reality of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and the importance of sharing baptism and the Lord's Supper together as a faith community. We want to be clear that Scripture is trustworthy in, reveal, in what it says about God's work of redemption in history. In our matters that are a little bit less clear or a little more complicated, we want to value our relationships with one another and unity over a position. You know, Jesus in this text 
focuses on how members of the community relate to one another be, because there's this pressure of, of being in the world. And it's substantial that the image Jesus chooses to use is one of servanthood. Servanthood is crucial to maintaining unity. Servanthood isn't about asserting your authority, but it's about serving others as we serve our master, Jesus. And that's why Jesus, and Paul, Jesus prays for unity for his disciples on the last night as he's sharing with them in John 17. That's why Paul encourages the Ephesian church to walk in unity in Ephesians chapter 4. The nature of the differences amongst Jesus' followers is meant to be inconsequential compared to the differences that Jesus' followers have with the rest of the world. So that's why Jesus calls for faithfulness, especially in how we care for one another. Faithfulness to the master is attentive listening to the master's voice, even when the master is not, or not as near as we might think. I was speaking with my friend Zach this week. Uh, he's pictured here working with some of the kids and he, he works for Extreme Love Ministries, in a ministry in Cambodia to fight human trafficking. These kids are human trafficking survivors. And through your generous support, we've been able to direct missions, funding to this work of ministry, to the work of this ministry in the past. And Zach spends a lot of time working in a residential home for these children who are trafficking survivors. And not only does he teach these children about Jesus and teach them basic life skills, he ends up driving them to school and he also ends up being the fix-it guy for the house. Now, living in a tropical city uh, uh, that's in a developing world, you know, it means that there's a patchwork of utilities where he has to MacGyver his own water drainage system because, so the home doesn't get flooded out every time there's a typhoon. So a church, so that's what he, that's what he did last year. A church in Australia sent him a high-capacity fuel pump so he could replace the four pumps that were running this system. But he couldn't find a part to connect the pump to the, the pipes, so it sat unused for six months. He was actively trying to solve a problem with very good intentions, but still, after six months, he was still waiting for the right solution. And one day, a typhoon hit. The electrical blew up in the house at 2 a.m., the next morning, he called an electrician. The electrician came in at 10. And while the electrician was there, he asked the electrician, hey, do you know where I could find this part? And the guy's like, yeah, sure. And he had it there within two hours. Little did he know, though, in the, between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., a friend of ours who was in Vancouver, a mutual friend of ours, texted him saying, hey, uh, Zach, this is out of the blue, and I don't know if this means anything to you, but I feel like God, you, you, you're angry and frustrated with God. And looking back at the situation and putting all the pieces together, Zach knew that God was forming him through this period of waiting as much as he wanted to solve the problem. And though he was actively trying to solve a problem with good intentions, hoping to serve these children that he was working with, God was doing something else in the process. God was forming Zach to be more like Christ. And as Zach said to me, he texted me saying, you know, when I look back, Several years ago, I would have just up and left the situation. I relied more on myself rather than on God here. It wasn't until my plans failed that I realized he was forming me to trust him and rely on him more. 
God used this time of active waiting to form Zach's faith, to help him become more faithful in the process of waiting. You see, faithful waiting isn't just our activity to be faithful to God as we wait. It's also what God does for us in our waiting to make us a more faithful representative of Jesus, our master. Faithful waiting is something we can do for God, but it's also something that God does for us in the midst of waiting. As we wait, God wants faithfulness, especially at the level of our interrelationships. And these texts encourage us to live, to live like what we shall become as we wait. Live like what we shall become as we wait. If we live rightly, righteously in the ways of Jesus, if we live in light of the master returning, we have nothing to fear when the master returns. We are made more like our master in the midst of our waiting. As we wait faithfully and actively for our master Jesus, we discover that there's an incredible surprise in this text. Take a look at the second half of 37. Truly, I tell you, he, that's the master, when he returns, he will dress himself to serve. We'll have them recline at the table and we'll come and wait on them. At the master's return, we find the master does something unexpected. Rather than be served by his servants, we find that it is the Lord who will put on the servant's garb and sit, ask the servants to sit down and he will serve the servants. The blessing is that Jesus delights in acknowledging and blessing those who have remained faithful to him in the waiting. And at the heart of the Lord's return is a reminder that our relationship with God will make us more like God. doesn't make us God, but make us more like God's character. In our waiting, it's not what you do and will do until Jesus returns, but who you will become until Jesus returns. In our waiting, it's not what we do, but it's who we will become until Jesus returns. See, keeping this goal and promise in mind helps us not to worry about when Jesus is going to return or what signs we have to watch for before Jesus comes back or to worry about other people who claim they know when Jesus is coming back. But instead, this promise helps us concentrate on being faithful while Jesus is gone and look forward to the day when Jesus returns. The question for us now is, are we living in the state of readiness for Jesus' return. And full acknowledgement, this is really challenging in our culture of relative comfort and the fact that everything we want is on demand. We have on-demand streaming. We have on-demand shopping. We have on-demand food. As we pass through Thanksgiving weekend, we find ourselves ramping up for this vacation travel or Christmas parties and decorating our homes. Or maybe as we are preparing for some family gatherings, we're girding up our loins for some talks with family members that we might not agree with. Waiting, we, we, our schedules are active, and our waiting, waiting is something that we don't really like. You know, in our opening story, Estragon and Vladimir were waiting for Godot, but they didn't know why they were waiting for him. They didn't know who he was. They didn't even know if he was going to show up. They didn't even know if he was a real person. 
But in Jesus' first arrival, we are given an idea of who it is that we are waiting for. Now, we're not just given an idea but we're, of the person, but we're given an idea of the home that is reflective of the master's character that the master is inviting us to serve in. The people of Israel waited for generations and centuries based on God's promise to them. And our waiting for our master Jesus is intended to be a continuance of this faithful waiting for generations. But we've been given a much more substantial promise than the Israelites. Our waiting for Jesus is not merely to express our faithfulness to him. Our waiting, our active waiting for Jesus forms us to be more like our master Jesus. We don't want wait actively to just wait actively to be faithful to Jesus. We wait actively to become more faithful to Jesus. Wait actively. Wait faithfully this season and discover who you can be in Christ. Amen.